lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Today, I'm sharing a lovely conversation I had with Stacy Stolt of the Chicago Botanic Garden. Among other things, Stacy is a rare book specialist, and we had a fascinating chat back in November of last year about her work as a librarian at the Botanic Garden, as well as one of the exhibitions she had curated, and something I'm so curious about, the Victorian Fern Craze. Now, if you're convinced that the world would be a better place with just a few more ferns, you'll love hearing Stacy chat with me about one of evolution's stalwart survivors, ferns. So that's what we're going to talk about on today's show, and it's all coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. In fact, I hope you're listening to a ton of gardening podcasts on your playlist, on your device, on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer every single week, because it's such a great way to grow and learn as a gardener. But truly, I'm so honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast And if you wouldn't mind doing me this one small favor, go ahead and share the show with your gardening friends and family. That's the number one way that shows grow by word of mouth. So go ahead and tell your friends about it if you enjoy listening to the show. Now, I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group, totally free, and I host it for listeners of the show. Now, these folks are made up of gardeners of all skill levels and locations from beginners to experts, and you can find the group on Facebook. All you have to do is go to Facebook, go to the search bar, and type in the name of our group the Still Growing Podcast Group. And then the listener community will show up at the top of the search results. And then all you have to do is request to join. Just tap on that little blue button. Now, let me share some of the benefits of joining the group. Here's just a little list of some of the tempting gardener benefits to consider. First, by joining the group, you'll have great garden articles that I curate for you appear in your Facebook newsfeed. In fact, one of the ways that you can completely control what you see on Facebook and make it more customized to you and your interests is to join groups on Facebook that focus on topics that you're interested in. So if you want to see more posts about gardening, then by all means, join the listener community for the show. In fact, look around and see if you can't find some other gardening groups that you'd like to join. Second, the listener community 
the Facebook group for this show, is the only place that I go when it's time to pick a lucky listener for any show giveaways. Finally, and I think this is the very best benefit, and it was the original reason why I created the group, and that is that you get to interact with the great guests that have been on the show. Because once a guest has been invited onto the show, they also get invited into the listener community. And so many of them have accepted the invitation, and they're in the group, and they're there to interact with you. So if you listen to an episode, and I have a guest on, and you have more questions, or you just want to continue the conversation, you'll have access to guests of the show, thanks to the Facebook group. And then, of course, finally, I just want to make you aware of the fact that I do not allow spam in the group. So everything you see in the group is dedicated to the mission of the show, which is to help you and your garden grow. Nothing in there is going to be a waste of your time. I always work very hard to make sure the content is helpful and worthwhile for you. Plus, don't forget, it's free and easy to join. Well, now let me welcome some of the new members that have joined the group in the last month. Jai Smith, Gabriella Sierra, Martha Dean, Martha Pat Kenny, Marsha Walters, Lisa Hove, Kim Benson Jansen, Marnie Moe Wheeler Havis, Sarah Eamon Campbell, Danny Allen, Duane Thompson, Rosita Schrock, Ann Griffin, Heather Beeblebrox, Rebecca Stoner Kurtz, and Robin Farrell. Welcome, you guys. Well, there were a number of great posts in the Facebook group from listeners this week, and I thought I'd highlight a few of them. First of all, listeners do a great job sharing beautiful pictures and videos of their gardens. Kathleen Brown Bonafonte shared a number of different posts, but this first one with her chickens caught my attention, and she wrote, when your foraging begins at 6 a.m., you require a shady nap by 9.30. Here are some pics of my newest sections of the gardens. My three-year plan is to eliminate my lawn and at least the large portion surrounding my home with mostly perennial veggies, herbs, pollinators, etc. And then in another post, Kathleen shared pictures of something super cool, her watermelon radish. And here's what she wrote. Nothing like walking out back and there is dinner. Watermelon radish, turnips, onion, my lone pepper, and basil. Thanks for the Basil Mania episode. I'm obsessed with basil. And I'm with Kathleen. I'm also obsessed with basil. Anyway, the pictures of her watermelon radish were amazing. So imagine a radish with that gorgeous pink center. Hers were pretty bright pink with hints of white popping through. And then the whole outside has this kind of faux rind on it, and it's green. And that's why they're called watermelon radishes. This image of these watermelon radishes evoked such a response in the listener community. So many people wanted to give them a try. And Kathleen just happened to have a picture of the seed packet with the name of the seed company where she got these seeds. And her seeds were from the Charles C. Hart Seed Company. And they're called Watermelon Radish. Amber Gooden asked, If the flavor differed much from regular radish, and Kathleen said it's very mild, nice texture, and a smooth crunch, people are excited about giving the watermelon radish a try. 
Katrina Lucier shared images from her garden, her first jalapeno, red bell and purple bell peppers, and then hello for Montana. It looks fantastic. Danny Perkins shared images of the wildflower seeds that he'd planted that are starting to take off. They're gorgeous. And then he also shared an amazingly striking image of his peppermint lace crepe myrtle that people loved. And then I wrote him this. I said, Danny, I'm so sorry I didn't reply to this post sooner. I had started to reply, but then I must have blacked out. Anyway, your tree is a stunner. And you should really let me know ahead of time if you're going to post something that's scandalously gorgeous. That way I'll know to sit down first. I'm telling you, this tree is amazing. And I was showing my kids because I'm like, oh my gosh, look at this crepe myrtle tree, which of course my kids up here in Minnesota have never seen anything like this. It's amazing. The other thing that Danny shared are images and videos of his sunflowers that he allows to come up under the bird feeder. He says sometimes it's good to just let it happen. And then Patricia Chandler Newport chimed in and she said, I try in vain to grow giant sunflowers every year, but the woodchuck eats them every time. Anyway, Danny said he had a friend in Utah once who started some in gallon containers and then transplanted them when they got to be a good size. This ended up being a longer post. We were all commenting on how to handle this woodchuck and whether or not we were going to sick our dogs on the woodchuck. And so we ended up getting to see pictures of Danny's dog, Dolly, and Patricia's dog, Clover. Anyway, I love that. I love seeing our four-legged friends who help us out in the garden. Patricia also wrote in and asked if anyone had a great recipe using garlic scapes. I experimented with them last summer, and they were tough and chewy. Either I prepared them wrong or picked too late. There was a nice batch of responses here. Sherry Kump said that last year she got them in her CSA and she really enjoyed the mild flavor. She referenced a website, Harmony Valley Farm homepage. They have many great recipes. Sue Luftig said that she cuts them up and freezes them for soups and stews. LaVon Hamelman pickles them and also grills them. And then Beth Engel said that she cuts them when they're young and then grinds them up in the food processor and then freezes them. She says, use them as you would bulb garlic. And then finally, my friend Jen McGinnis from the blog Frau Zenny shared her recipe for garlic scape pesto. So there you go, Patricia. You got a number of different responses there. Michael Lockstamfor shared pictures of his garden, and here's what he wrote. The best mistake I think I've made since I started working as a gardener, I put a tray of tomato seedlings to harden off in the raised bed before planting them out. Several of them rooted through the tray, and now they've taken over and are doing great. I haven't been able to cultivate tomato in Florida, and it feels like a backhanded compliment that success was achieved against my best efforts and plans. Now I'm building some bamboo trellises underneath. Anyway, it's fun. And I wrote, you know, I love those happy accidents that happen for us as gardeners. Those moments when we're not trying to learn something, we're not trying to make anything good happen. It just happens anyway, in spite of us. I think those are some of our best learning moments in the garden. There were a lot of questions around plants and plant IDs this week. Sue Luftig showed a beautiful purple flower and wanted to know what it was. Initially, people thought it was bachelor buttons. They didn't look like bachelor buttons. 
And it was finally determined it was Campanula glomerata. And then Sue wrote back later and she says, update, I met the master gardener who created this lovely spot and planted this purple flower. And she affirmed, yep, it's Campanula glomerata. Sarah Ladd in St. Paul said, hey, gardening friends, we bought our first home recently and these plants have started blooming in my perennial garden. Does anyone know the names of these? The first one was spiderwort. The second one was lysimachia. And then we weren't sure what the last flower was. So I reached out to some friends and the answer was wild four o'clock. So mystery solved. Amber Gooden took a picture of a plant that is striking and yet very dangerous. It's belladonna or deadly nightshade. And it is, in fact, poisonous. Patricia Chandler Newport said, pull it. It spreads like mad once the berries set. And it was so funny when I saw Amber had posted this because I was in another gardening group where somebody had shared a similar image. The petals looked to be a different color, but it was that striking yellow center that caught my eye. Danny Perkins put a post in that says he was planting false Queen Anne's lace next year in a wildflower planting. He had started it from seed and was using it in a container. And this led to a conversation with a number of us about whether or not that was the same as bishop weed or gout weed. And then Jennifer Konow came to the rescue and said, bishop's weed, gout weed, snow on the mountain is an invasive plant and incredibly tough to eradicate, although it does provide blooms that insects like. I've been fighting this in my garden for years as it will take over other native plants. And then she correctly pointed out Queen Anne's Lace, which this post is all about, is a different plant completely. It's considered naturalized here in the United States. And then she went on to say that neither of these plants are native species, but both can be beneficial to insects. However, my personal opinion is Queen Anne's Lace is far better than other non-natives like Bishop's Weed because it's considered naturalized rather than invasive. And because my personal experience with Bishop's Weed makes me realize that it's pretty rotten to be fighting an invasive plant for years. And then along with the plant ID category, Patricia Chandler Newport shared this wonderful post about poison ivy. And I thought I'd share it with you here because she did just a wonderful job. She wrote, it's that time of year when I do my level best to educate folks how to identify poison ivy. This nasty plant strikes fear in most people by giving them a truly miserable rash that can last for weeks. You can avoid this terrible fate by learning what it looks like and staying away. Even if you're not allergic, you should still be careful. I never used to be allergic and would casually pull it and had zero concern until I became allergic. This is what happens after repeated exposure. So just learn it and stay away. Now, most of you have heard the old adage, leaves of three, let it be. While this is good to remember, not everything with three leaves, technically leaflets, is poison ivy or even just poisonous. Common box elder seedlings are confused with poison ivy. The leaves do look similar, but box elder is a tree. Poison ivy is a vine. Raspberries and even Virginia creeper can look like poison ivy at times. 
Poison ivy causes an extremely itchy blistered rash by the oil in the leaves, stems, berries, flowers, and roots. The oil, called urochial, gets on your skin when you come in contact with the plant. Anything the oil touches remains a contamination source until you scour it off. And it's not enough just to wash your hands. You have to sanitize your clothing, your gloves, your tools, anything that came into contact with the oil and then gets transferred to your skin. Now, to get Urochial off your hands, start by rinsing your hands and arms with very cold water, never hot or warm water. Cold water closes the pores so the oils can't penetrate so easily. Scrub the skin with a nail brush and a good degreaser soap such as dish soap. It takes a fair bit of effort to remove the Urochial. Now, Patricia went on to describe how to get rid of it and then also different ways that you can identify something to determine if it's poison ivy or not. And I thought Patricia ended her post with a great suggestion. She said, check out photos of poison ivy online and then check out the lookalikes of poison ivy. And if you're in doubt, you could always send the photo to me. Anyway, that was very helpful. Finally, listeners shared some listener love this week. Tony Pollock said, thank you for the ad to the Facebook group, the listener community, the still growing podcast group. I just found this podcast and I love everything so far. Rob Schmidt wrote, thank you for adding me to the group. I was fortunate to stumble across the Basil Mania podcast on Tuesday, and it inspired me to go to my garden center in search of not only basil, but other vegetables as well. I found three varieties of basil. I will be growing in containers as I hopefully will be moving into a new house soon. Lots of people commented that they loved the Basil Mania episode. Darling Urso said, I was also inspired by Basil Mania and I picked this up at the garden center. Red Reuben basil, Thai basil, and Genovese, they're all together in a container that I used in last night's dinner. I'm hoping it will get enough sun on my deck. Sue Lufdig wrote that after the Basil Mania podcast, she wanted to run out and get more. And Sarah Ladd wrote, I loved the Basil Mania episode of Still Growing. You are right. Basil grows quickly. This is my little pot of freshly germinated seeds. And then she shared that image. Excited to take some cuttings when they get bigger. Kathleen Brown Bonafonte wrote, more basil mania. Not sure how one cell got like 10 seeds. These are my succession plants in progress. And then she shared that picture. Already have in the ground Thai, African, blue basil, sweet Genovese, and cinnamon. There's some great selections. Amber Gooden did the same thing. She said, after listening to last week's episode, I went home and planted even more basil. Love it. And then finally, Sandy Crumpton Heron said, thank you for adding me to the group. I'm enjoying the Facebook page plus the website. I've listened to every one of the podcasts from the past, some more than once. I awoke this morning with the thought on my mind, it's Friday, a new still growing podcast. Looking forward to hearing the new one. Thank you, Jennifer, for such a great resource for all of us gardeners, in my opinion, the best on the net. Well, anyway, thank you all for that listener love. I love hearing from you guys and knowing that the show is helping you and your gardens grow, that we're fulfilling the mission of the podcast. 
And for me, that's the best part of the Facebook group that I get to interact with you guys and see posts from folks who share a passion for gardening and have a curiosity to learn more. So come hang out with us. Don't be shy, even if you've been listening to the show and have yet to join the still growing listener community. It's really so super simple to be part of the group. All you have to do the next time you're in Facebook, just remember Go up to the search bar and type in still growing podcast group and then request to join. I look forward to meeting you over in the group. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments, from updates on past guests to articles featuring fascinating folks in the world of horticulture that I'd love to chat with, and that's something I call the Dream Guest Segment. I also cover news and information on special topic areas like sustainability and science, And then the other segments are really designed to honor the commitment of the show to helping you and your garden grow. And they are the how-to DIY segment, the continuing ed segment, the plant spotlight, shopping recipes, inspiration, and quotables. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay somewhat abreast of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it in the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group. So there's no need to take notes. If you hear something and you want to read the full article, just head on over to the group and join and you'll get all of this content for free. Okay, let's kick it off with the guest update segment. Mighty Axe Hops shared a super cool video. They're doing a camp for lovers of their hops and the beers that use their hops and it's called Camp Fair State. And if you're looking for kind of a Moonlight Kingdom-esque kind of production and you like to watch those things, this would be a great video to watch. I think it looks like a ton of fun. In sustainability this week, there was a great post on Get Busy Gardening. It's called How Do Rain Barrels Work? That was a great post. And then I shared an article from Gardenista that was called Homemade Remedies, Five Natural Garden Helpers. And it included things like flower fertilizer using Epsom salts, bug repellent and soil boost using coffee grounds, Weed killer, of course, using vinegar, although there was that article just last week that we talked about with past guest Jeff Gilman, and he advised against it if you are going to use it indiscriminately on plant material in your garden because you could also be hurting some of the living things in your garden like frogs. Another thing it suggested in this article was amending your soil with eggshells. And then last but not least, it was creating a mildew treatment using a spray that was a mix of plain yogurt and water to treat rose mildew. Anyway, I shared it in the group and I wrote, I haven't heard of the yogurt spray for mildew. I said, I'm very curious about that. Jennifer Canal said, interesting. I haven't heard of it either. I have a long line of mostly heirloom peonies along one side of my house. Because they're older plants that haven't been overly bred, they seem prone to powdery mildew every year. If we get too much rain, I might consider using this just to see if it works. Danny Perkins said, I've long heard that a mixture of milk and water would fight mildew and black spot. 
And then Christine Redelak chimed in and said, milk and water is recommended for powdery mildew on our pumpkins and zucchini by a local radio program. I have tried it with success. Also in sustainability this week was a video and an article that said mowers of suburban lawns are warned to watch for bunny nests under patches of dead grass. And basically the video showed how sometimes you have these areas in your lawn that just look like kind of a dead yellow spot, when in reality, those also can be areas where rabbits will have dug and put their little baby bunnies. They've made their home for the rabbits under that little patch of dead grass. And then, of course, this just happened to one of our listeners. Sean Matthews chimed in and said, lucky for these guys, my dogs discovered them before I started to mow. They're safely with a wildlife rehabilitation charity now. In the continuing Ed segment was an article by thespruce.com called, Does It Matter If Tomatoes Are Determinant or Indeterminate? This was a very good article giving you an overview of the difference between determinate and indeterminate tomatoes. Of course, this term refers to the growth habit of tomato plants. Determinate tomatoes are varieties that grow to a fixed mature size and then they ripen all their fruit in a short period of time. Usually in about two weeks, it's all over but the crying. Whereas indeterminate tomato plants are the vining plants that continue to grow in length throughout the growing season, which is why you'll sometimes see them referred to as vining tomatoes. They're the indeterminate tomatoes. And the best part about the indeterminates is that they will continue to set and ripen fruit throughout the growing season. So my little trick to remember that is determined or determinate tomatoes are the ones that are just going to get it done. They are going to reach maturity and they are going to just produce their little hearts out and then be done. They're kind of the all or nothing. And then the indeterminates are like, eh, we'll get to it. We're just vining our way around. We'll produce when we feel like it. So there you go. House and Garden out of England shared a great post that's called What to Do in the June Garden. So if you're looking for ideas on gardening tips, that was a great post. The Empress of Dirt shared a wonderful article called Advice for Starting a New Garden Pond. Anyway, this hit home. This is very timely for a lot of folks who are considering doing that in their gardens. And then Hollister House Garden is offering a continuing ed opportunity. If you're a still growing listener in the Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts area, I hope you get a chance to attend the Garden Study Weekend that's coming up at Hollister House Garden this September. This is a great opportunity that's presented by the Hollister House Garden and the Garden Conservancy, and they are offering this Garden Study study weekend symposium. Now, if you're a member, it'll cost you $185. If you're a non-member, it's $200. But what do you get for that? It's from 8 to 6 p.m. And they're bringing in four or five experts to talk about the exuberant garden. You're going to get a continental breakfast and lunch at the symposium and cocktails. And you get to preview buying at the sale of rare and unusual plants at the Hollister House Garden. Now, that would be enough right there, just having access to that sale. But there are a ton of great experts. There's a Dutch landscape designer. There's a leading 
expert on the restoration of the William Robinson's legendary gardens at Gravetie Manor. Love Gravetie Manor. There's an expert on woody plants and also the author of The Plant Lover's Guide to Magnolia. I love that series. That's Andrew Bunting. And then Jane Garmy, noted author and passionate gardener on A Sense of Place, Challenges, Approaches, and Solutions to Creating Gardens. They will all be there, and the symposium is moderated by Ted Forrest of the New York Botanical Garden. Sounds like a great event. There will be links to this in the Facebook community this week. In the how-to DIY segment was a fun article from tastingtable.com on how to keep garlic from burning. And here's the trick. You throw it in the pan last minute. So it's all about timing. Do-it-yourself Danielle, a blog that I found this past week. It's under the title DIYDanielle.com. She did a great planter tutorial. She created a tutorial with lattice work coming out the top so that you could create these privacy planters. She did a wonderful job. She painted them. They're adorable, very doable. Smartschoolhouse.com shared this adorable craft that's called glowing watering can made with fairy lights. And basically, you take a watering can and you have it be on a stake where it's like it looks like it's tipping water out. And then instead of having water come out, you put those fairy lights. So the fairy lights just kind of dangle out of the watering can. And it's kind of a sweet little garden art thing for your garden. Anyway, that was fun. Saver shared an excellent post about summer squash. And here's one of the things that they wrote. Super fresh and young squash are lovely, shaved into raw ribbons. But all summer squashes benefit from a touch of high heat. Cook them hot and fast so they will get a bit of color on the outside and retain their bite inside. And then they offered a ton of recipes. And the last piece in the how-to DIY segment was this really good idea that was shared on foodnetwork.com. And it was how to make pineapple flowers. They're so adorable. They're so sweet, so easy to make. You take a pineapple and you slice it and then you let that slice dry. And as the slice starts to dry, the center part of the pineapple that's in that slice turns this darker color. The edges of the pineapple slice kind of turn dark as well. And then it slowly starts to dehydrate to the point where the outer rim of the pineapple starts to curl in and it makes this pineapple flower. And then, of course, they showed it as a garnish for pina coladas. But then Jennifer Konow said, I have seen these pretty pineapple flowers as toppers on cakes and cupcakes. So pretty. Give that a go. That's an easy one. I wrote when I shared it in the Facebook group, I said, I can see it now. We're all going to be making pineapple flowers and showing all our friends and family. This one is easy and fun. In the plant spotlight, gardenersworld.com shared five summer perennials that you should be looking into for June, lupins, euphorbias, peonies, heleniums. Garden Betty had a fun post about beets. And this was a post that says, why do multiple seedlings sprout from a beet seed? Anyway, I won't answer it for you. You'll have to read it yourself. But it was a great little post, complete with pictures of beet seeds if you've never seen them before. John Cheaper's Kitchen Garden Seeds shared some unusual veggies that you can direct sow now. And the one that got my attention was the Black Nebula Carrot. So cool. And here's what it said in the description. Many so-called black carrots are dark purple on the outside, but with an orange core. 
But our Black Nebula is deep purple through and through. Its purple color comes from a high concentration of anthocyanins, which are powerful antioxidants. These carrots are gorgeous. When I shared this in the Facebook group, I said, here's three fantastic words, Black Nebula Carrot. Get inspired. Go check that out. Listener LaVon Hamelman had shared in her Facebook post that Batavian lettuce Pablo is a great variety to plant. She said it's so crisp and sweet. It's one of her favorites. It's just starting to curl right now. And she got it from the Baker Creek Seed Catalog. Looks beautiful. There was another post that I found about squash, and this one was from Brit.com, and it said, harvest those squash blossoms and make these 11 recipes now. And here was the piece that I thought was interesting. It said, since the female blossoms are the only ones who produce fruit, you can gather the male flowers without worrying about impeding the plant's production. Still a little skeptical? These 11 stunning recipes will galvanize you. Great recipes here. Rutgers University released a new pink dogwood this spring. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's called Scarlet Fire, and you have to see the pink of this dogwood. It's amazing. And when I shared it in the group, I said, let's remember that you just might cause a stampede if you yell Scarlet Fire in a crowded garden center. Be responsible, passionate, but responsible. And if you get your hands on one of these, post pictures. All right. In the news this week was a story about blueberry growers in Maine that as the prices for blueberries are dropping, people are exiting out of growing blueberries in Maine. That's a problem. The Spruce.com shared an article about water spouts on your trees. These are those areas on a tree where you've probably pruned too close to the trunk of the tree. And what ends up happening is you get this water sprout of new growth coming out of the tree. It looks like a spray. And it's all these little baby shoots. So here's what it said. It said, water sprouts appear as strange out of character growth from older branches of a tree or large shrub. They tend to grow fast, often uncannily vertically, sometimes in clusters at a single point. You can think of water sprouts as suckers that come from above ground instead of below ground. And you basically prune them right off. Here was a very interesting post about vertical farming. There's a group called Bowery Farming, and they just raised $20 million for their post-organic warehouse farm. And actually, if you read in the article, they got over $27 million. So if you don't think there's money to be made in vertical farming, you would be wrong. Curb.com shared the 11 best botanical gardens in the United States. Now there's a bucket list for the gardener in your life. The Huffington Post shared an article that was headlined, Botanists say there's no such thing as vegetables and we're shook. Here was the quote from the article. From a biological standpoint, what we call vegetables are really just parts of plants. So botanists just call them by their parts. Asparagus is the stalk. Broccoli is the flower, kale, the leaves, onions are the bulb, carrots are the root of a plant, and tomatoes are the fruit of a plant. And so while this was revolutionary to the reporter at the Huffington Post, the botanist that he talked to was so matter of fact about it. He's like, "Eh, you know, do we even need this classification? We're just talking about parts of plants here. And those are the things that we refer to as vegetables. I thought you could make an entire children's book about this concept. Kind of a interesting perspective on how we look at vegetables. 
The Chicago Tribune shared a great article about coleslaw. And the headline was, anything can be coleslaw if you know what you're doing. And it showed a lot of great recipes. Here was the quote that I particularly liked. It said, of course, the most common kind of slaw is the Kolish kind. In fact, the word coleslaw is simply a transliteration from the Dutch coleslaw which, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the foremost authority on the origin of English language words, is a form of coal salad or cabbage salad. In the Dream guest segment are two gals. The first is Anna Greenland. She wrote a post for The Telegraph and shared her six favorite herbs. Some of these I'd heard about before. Some of these I've never grown myself. And in case you didn't know, Anna had a big hand in creating the first vegetable garden at Kew. She's now at Soho Farmhouse. And here are the ones that made her top six. All right, Anna Greenland's favorite herbs. Here we go. Fennel. She said, I can't get enough of fennel. The kitchen uses the fronds predominantly to add a flourish to salads or with fish. Bergamot. Easy to grow. A great bee plant. Monarda. Makes fantastic tea. Pineapple sage. I have pineapple sage. I love that. Sweet Sicily. And I don't have that one. She said, it makes me smile whenever I see it. I love the look of the delicate lacy flowers and fern-like leaves. She uses the flowers to garnish cocktails or desserts. Angelica. She wrote, everyone needs Angelica in a veg garden. And then scented pelargoniums. Robin Pear would be thrilled to hear that. Anna said, we always have a range of scented pelargoniums, lemon, orange, and mint. But nothing quite beats the classic rose-scented variety, Attar of Roses. She uses the leaves to infuse teas, creams for panna cottas, and syrups for sorbets. And of course, I referred there to Robin Pear, the author of The Plant Lover's Guide to Hardy Geraniums. But Robin runs that nursery out in California that specializes in hardy geraniums and pelargoniums. And she would know all about what Anna Greeland is talking about there with those scented pelargoniums. Then the other woman that made it into the guest dream segment is Summer Rain Oaks. She's, of course, the woman that was living in her Brooklyn apartment, and she decided to fill it with houseplants. And I love reading about what she had done. I think back in 2013, she said that she'd had like 120 plants in her apartment, and now she's got almost 700 growing in her apartment. But what I loved about this article was the quote that she had shared. Here's what she said, I've learned from my plants that in order to grow, you need to seek out the sunlight, even if it means having to stretch or contort yourself to get it. I've also learned that it often takes more than one plant to create the ideal environment that plants want to live in. It requires a whole community to shift and change the dynamics, not unlike a community of people. And perhaps most important, my plants have taught me what it means to grow roots. You often cannot grow or even change the community that you want to live in if you don't stay long enough to imprint upon the very soil on which you stand. I love that quote. Wasn't that great? In Science This Week, there was a great post on How Stuff Works that shared a synchronized firefly light show that people were going to see. 
It took place in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee. Every year for a couple of weeks in late May or early June, the park sponsors viewings of a certain species of synchronous firefly. It's about one of 19 species of fireflies in the park, but the only one in North America that has its choreography together. And it's a stunning display. And it was fun. There was a video that they shared with this of all these families coming to see the firefly display with their kids. It was just a hoot. Treehugger.com shared a very interesting article that was simply titled, City Trees Suffer from Not Getting Enough Sleep. And here was the quote that I thought was very interesting. Of course, it's from Peter Volenben, the author of The Secret Life of Trees. And it says, if anyone knows trees and embraces anthropomorphizing them, it's Volenben. The German forester and best-selling author does not shy away from talking about trees as if they were people. I use a very human language, he says. And then here was the key part. About trees, Peter Wallenbin said, they have to sleep at night. Research shows that trees near streetlights die earlier, like burning a lamp in your bedroom at night. It's not good for you. And it turns out it's not good for them either. In the shopping segment this week, I shared this ornament frame that you can use to press leaves. It's from Arrow Home, and it's very reasonable. It would make a very cute gift. It's $8. Now, I'm looking into getting a flame weeder, so I shared a post from Hobby Farms that was called my new favorite tool, the flame weeder, and it sparked an entire conversation in the Facebook group for the show But the bottom line is, this is on my shopping list, and I'll be looking into a number of different varieties on Amazon, more than likely, over the next couple of weeks. And when I pick one and get it, I'll let you know which one I decided to go with. And then I'll give you a little review. An inspiration this week, Apartment Therapy shared looks we love for the outdoors, and it was a ton of different patios. And the one that I especially enjoyed was this patio with a herringbone brick pattern. So if you're looking for an idea, you're putting together a patio and you don't just want your pavers to be straight up and down, check out this herringbone pattern. You might fall in love with it. And then finally, an inspiration this week, Gardenista shared a fun outdoor living room in San Francisco. And the part that I completely was just like mouth agape, just dying over is the fact that it shared a heated sofa that was included in one of the outdoor living rooms. Just amazing. Can you imagine sitting on a heated sofa in your outdoor living room? I would totally fall asleep out there. In recipes this week, there were a number of really inspiring recipes. The first was a tasty creamed peas with eggs recipe. That looked amazing. They said it would be delicious on toast or serve them along with a fish main dish or salmon croquet. Greatest.com said, here are three ingredient combos that make perfect summer dishes. The first is watermelon, mozzarella, and basil, corn, cilantro, and strawberries, zucchini, mint, and cocoa powder. Done. I wash you dry. I love that blog. They shared a fantastic Parmesan roasted cauliflower recipe. There was an excellent pumpkin seed and cilantro pesto. Bon Appetit offered up a grilled broccoli with avocado and sesame. 
And the thing I noted here is that they said right in the article here for this grilled broccoli that broccoli can take more heat on the grill than you might think. It won't taste burnt unless you actually set it on fire. So if you're grilling your broccoli, keep that in mind. Greatest also shared 11 hummus recipes that will make you ditch store-bought hummus for good. Very inspiring recipes there. And then finally, apparently we missed National Gin Day. And so Ecofiles shared a gin recipe with a twist. And here's what you do. You order your gin and tonic, and then you have them add some tea for a more sophisticated cocktail. That can be your summer gin and tonic. Just have them add some iced tea to the mix. In quotes this week, there were a number that I found about ferns. The first is from Frederick Buchner from his book, Telling the Truth, The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. And he says, the world can give you these glimpses as well as fairy tales can. The smell of rain, the dazzle of sun on white clapboard with the shadows of ferns and wash on the line, the wilderness of a winter storm when in the house the flame of a candle doesn't even flicker. And then if you remember last week, the poem that I read was an excerpt from Coolidge's This Lime Tree Bower is My Prison. And interestingly enough, when I was researching the Victorian fern craze, I, of course, came across an article written by Sarah Whittingham, the author of the Victorian fern craze. And as she's writing this article, she begins to reference that Lime Tree Bower is my prison poem. Because right in that poem is this sentence that says, whose plumy ferns forever nod and drip, sprayed by the waterfall. And as she was referencing that, she says, Coolridge was therefore most likely describing the lady fern. And then she went on to say that soon after moving to Greta Hall in the lakes in July 1800, Coolidge observed in one of his notebooks this passage, and I thought it was absolutely glorious. Here's what he wrote. An eminently beautiful object is fern on a hillside scattered thick but growing single and all shaking themselves in the wind. He also wrote to Samuel Perkis, I hear his son Hartley's voice at this moment distinctly. He is below in the garden shouting to some foxgloves and fern which he has transplanted, and telling them what he will do for them if they grow like good boys. And then later in this article, Sarah writes about Wordsworth. And specifically, she quotes from his poem, Point Rash Judgment, from Poems on the Naming of Places. And here, Wordsworth is writing of Osmondia Regalis, or the Royal Fern, which grows by the rock pool at Dove Cottage, and here's what he wrote all those years ago in 1800. Many such there are, fair ferns and flowers, and chiefly that tall fern, so stately, of the Queen Osmunda named. Plant lovelier in its own retired abode on Grasmere's beach, than Naed by the side of Grecian Brook, or Lady of the Mere, soul-sitting by the shores of old romance." And here, of course, Wordsworth is referencing the fact that Naed, this water nymph, and the Lady of the Lake, neither one of them are lovelier than the royal fern. 
Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder that you can get all of these posts with links as well as bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. The next time you're in Facebook, just head on up to the search bar, type in Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. Okay, now it's on to today's show featuring Stacy Stolt of the Chicago Botanic Garden. Among other things, Stacy is a rare book specialist, and we had a fascinating chat back in November of last year about her work as a librarian at the Botanic Garden, as well as one of the exhibitions that she had curated for earlier this year, earlier in 2017. And it was an exhibit all about the Victorian fern craze. Now, as far as I'm concerned, Ferns are wonderfully intoxicating, from their delicate fronds to lacy, lush foliage. They are elegant, sophisticated, tropical, and earthy. Their fragrance can include a hay-like sweetness with nuances of thyme, camphor, and wood. Why go crazy for ferns? Well, they're friends with moist shade lovers like moss and lichen. In fact, where you see one, you usually see the other two. They're deer and rabbit resistant, so that's a plus. But the primary focus, the main reason I think most people fall in love with ferns is, of course, the foliage. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about ferns later in the episode, so why don't I give you a quick roadmap for today's show with Stacey Stolt. I'll start the show out with a clip of my conversation with Stacy, where she's sharing all about what she does at the Chicago Botanic Garden Library. Now, back when I called Stacy in November, I thought we were going to have a quick chat about the Victorian fern craze. But instead, kismet took over, and I found my curiosity totally and happily occupied by just learning more about Stacy herself, how she came to be a botanical librarian, and the amazing collections that she stewards and has access to at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I think you'll agree, Stacy is a fascinating person in the world of horticulture. So, after we get to know Stacy and after we find out a little bit more about her work at the Chicago Botanic Garden, I'll pop back in and then I will get you ready for the clip where we talk about the Victorian fern craze. So let's get to it. Just to set the stage once again, the clip I'm about to play is my first conversation with Stacy. It's totally cold. It's totally spontaneous. I had just picked up the phone sight unseen and called Stacy. So we're getting to know each other in this conversation, and it turns into this very lovely, very informative chat almost like a mini class on rare books, on putting together an exhibition. There's just so much here, not to mention all of the great history that Stacy has at her fingertips. She just has it all in her brain. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Stacy. Well, why don't okay. we start by having you tell us a little bit about what you do for the Chicago Botanic Garden? Well, I'm the manager of public services, and so that means outreach, I do research for the staff and the scientists at the at the garden. 
and then I'm in charge of the circulation desk. So I have two direct reports, and they keep the circulation desk working. What I love mostly about my job is that I get to work with the rare books. Uh, so I'm the rare book specialist, too. And so we do four exhibitions a year with rare books. We have over 3,000 rare books in the collection and several thousand rare journals. Just about quarterly, we change we change out the the exhibition, and so I work with the I write I do the research for the for the exhibit. The director and I talk over you know what the exhibits are going to be. So we're usually a year out deciding what we're going to bring out, and then um, from there just do the research on what's going to be in, select the books. Once it gets to be time, uh, draws closer to the exhibition. The written text goes to uh, the editorial department here, and uh, I work with the uh, production team or the the graphics department. They're they're phenomenal. So uh, Wendy Griffith, James Frost, and Robin Carlson, who's the photographer, they'll come and I'll lay everything out for them, and we kind of get a you know a layout. We we'll work on a layout a little bit. They'll take photos of really interesting illustrations and then they'll work their magic on how the signage will look. So that's how we do the process basically for the exhibitions. So I get to spend time looking through the books. Yay! That's insane. Well, now I have to ask you, there are so many questions that I had as you were you were just giving this wonderful introduction into your, your daily life, which is very fascinating. First and foremost is, how do you end up as a rare book specialist? It's It can't be something you set out to be. I'm imagining <laughs> that it's something that kind of slowly happened over time. You must have gravitated toward this area or somebody kind of pushed you into this? Uh, interesting that you said pushed me. Um, so <laughs> I've had a lot of backgrounds. Like most librarians, I think they come to being librarians and, and information stewards with this kind of background, like an all-encompassing kind of thing. Because I used to, I worked in real estate, so I worked with people. Um, I was a property manager, which has, you know, nothing to do with libraries, but I was a huge education fan and reader and so at one point in my life I went to Oxford to just do a a semester abroad and so I got to work in the Bodleian Library and I love libraries. So my sister who was a librarian uh, said, you know, I don't know why you're not a librarian. I don't understand it. You've you know, we call you up and you've got all this you know, you're like an information hoarder. You know, I looked at you know, my my so my background is English and biology. So it's like, okay, where'd that come from? Wow. Um, and I did work in in the, ad, in the advertising world for a while too. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go back and get an English master's, and then decided we we had a, a class in the library. Somebody held up a Kelmscott Press book and said, anybody recognize this book? And I was like, looking around, nobody's raising their hand, and I sheepishly, you know, put my hand up like. Grr. Is it a Kelmscott Press book? And, you know, so the woman's like, I think you're, I think you should be a librarian. And my sister had been saying this for a long time. So, but, well, I love rare books. I did know that. And so the library master's degree that I was looking for had to have a rare book component to it. Dominican, they did have rare book classes. And so I thought, well, that's it. Then I'll just, you know, start this off. And, 
luckily, one of the professors who did um, the rare book courses also was the, he had been the manager here at the Botanic Gardens Library. And then he became, he had this uh, chair, I forgot what he was called. He was the something chair at the university. So he then became the curator here and was still teaching at Dominican. So that's how I started here. I came here as an internship or a practicum for grad school. And then I never left. <laughs> and then you've never left. I love I that story. I never left. Well, yeah. and, and you know, the other thing I think is fascinating about you, Stacy, is the degrees that you picked, what you majored in in college, because you're, you're very balanced. You're right brain and left brain if you did English and biology. Right. And everything that I do here is, it's all image based. I mean, I, there are two different brain types here. Some of the folks have this, like this hierarchical kind of brain pattern where they look at things and think, oh, you know, that's how do people see this from the computer aspect? How do they see it on the outside? How do they see it on the inside? And um, everything that I look at, it's got to be visual. I'm a real visual person, so that's why when I work on um, the layouts and stuff, I have just put together a layout for the the team when they come in. I take photos of it and kind of lay it out and say, this is what I'm what I'm seeing in my mind's eye. Other folks have more of a detailed vision. I could never be a cataloger because I don't have that, you know, real... I don't hone in on those types of details and more of the, I don't know how to explain this, but it's just very visual for me. So it's detailed, but different, I guess. So I don't know. That made no sense. (laughs) Well, I, I, I get where you're coming from. You know, with me, if I don't see the vision, if I can't lock and load on where am I going with this, I just, I I forget it. I'm paralyzed. I can't move forward. I have to buy into the vision and have that idea of where I'm going with something before I can get really excited. And then, and then it's not a problem at all. I can get going right away. I'm a great project starter for sure. Yeah. Are you in that same, same boat then when you're starting a new exhibition, do you need to spend some time getting to know the vision before you can start to work with the specific rare books? Yeah, I need to be emerged a little bit, and then things start coming together. So, and what I love um, is finding themes. So as I do my research, if there's uh, a running theme or people who have interesting connections to each other. There's always all these connections because of how plant hunters and all these people were have had just gone off on the science trajectory. Everybody was looking for, you know, plants to bring back and, and England was the hub of all this, you know, there was so much science going on in, in Europe. And so all this was, you know, coming in and there were so many different connections. All these people were kind of like working across countries and oceans sometimes, and you think, how are these people connecting? They didn't have the internet, they didn't have any of the tools that we have now, and so those kind of connections to, you know, Darwin and him being friends with Hooker at Kew, and they knew, you know, these other folks, and that is the thing that kind of makes me pop, you know. Whoa! All these all these different weird connections are happening, and this is how everybody is kind of interconnected. When I immerse myself into the information, it starts to give me the storyline. 
Well, and that really is the excitement behind a lot of what you do, putting together the connections. And as you were speaking about that, I was thinking about my kids because I have Mm -hmm. a fifth grader, a seventh grader, a ninth grader, and an 11th grader. And uh, (laughs) when I think about the way that they learn, it's very standalone for the most part. Mm -hmm. It's we're going to learn about Thomas Edison and Mm -hmm. not necessarily the relationships and the contemporaries of Thomas Edison's time. You know, everything is very disparate. And so that, I think, is just how many of us have come to understand history. And so when you do put those connections together, it makes it so much more exciting. It's like doing family history research, and then it's like, oh, I didn't know they dated, or I I didn't know that these were two brothers married to two sisters. You know what I mean? You know, and and learning about people's, you know, what drove them or their kind of moral issues. Like, I'm a huge fan of Darwin, and I think about him and his wife, Emma. They were both on, like, the opposing sides of evolution, the thought of, you know, life and death. And, you know, how did they get through that? You know, how did they work things out? And they were both finding different ways to work through these issues and it's like wow they had those same issues that a lot of people do and the fact that he was so far reaching I mean he just talked to people all over the place but you don't know that like you said you learn things standalone and then you realize that there there one thing leads to another like we have I got to tell you this because this is so cool in our um, collection we have a collection of, let's see, what's the guy's name? He's a, an orchid hybridizer, and his name is not coming to me right at the moment, but, oh, Goss, G-O-S-S-E. Okay. Uh, Philip, Philip Henry Goss. So he was, like, doing all this hybridizing with orchids. And so he was writing letters, and he wrote a letter to Joseph Dalton Hooker. And we have a letter, uh, the letter from Joseph Dalton Hooker back to this Philip Henry Goss in his handwriting, and it's like, wow, Joseph Dalton Hooker to me, it's like, you know, some people go, who the heck is that? But he's the second um, director of Q, you know, the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, and, you know, we look at Q like, wow, they were the, you know, the forerunner of the educational part of garden history. Yeah. First gardens that we know about are like the 1500s and Padua and Italy and stuff, but then... England really put started pushing the the plant hunting and the collections development and all that stuff. So he's, you know, Joseph Dalton Hooker is like this great guy because he's the best friend to Charles Darwin, who was the one saying, hey, better get this, you know, evolutionary stuff out there because Alfred Russell Wallace, the other guy who's writing about evolution, is just about ready to publish his work. I mean, he has no idea that Charles Darwin is coming up with this same kind of conclusion. And so Dalton is seeing all this going, come on, buddy, publish this already. You've been working on it for 20 years. And they just branch out and talk to all these different people. But the fact that we have that letter in our collection, I get the goosebumps every time I show it to people. It's like, whoa! Oh, you know. Yeah, that's fascinating. So. so that brings me to something else that you said that created a question in my mind, and that is, how do you secure rare books? How do you secure a letter, a piece of history like that from this Philip Henry Goss to Hooker? How does that happen? 
That's a really good question. Um, a lot of, uh, so we had a rare book collection before 2002. We had actually maybe 1,500 or, or more. But in 2002, the garden made this acquisition from the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. They are the second oldest horticultural society in the U.S., and they were a repository for all these really wonderful books being published during their time. So a lot of the books that came from them are from from England, from the 1800s, 1830s, you know, but we have things that go back. Our oldest book is from 1482. So this acquisition was made when uh, once the Mass Hort Society was having some financial difficulty, they decided that they were going to auction off some of their books because that's what usually, unfortunately, that's what happens to institutions when they need money. They think, oh, what are we going to, you know, what can we unload? And I'm sure it's a really awful thing to have to do. Mm. Um, So... Uh, luckily, we were in the position in 2002 to be able to make this acquisition. You know, had it been in 2008 when the markets were tanking and stuff, probably wouldn't have happened. But um, so we got this collection. We didn't get everything from them, but we got a, a majority of their um, items. And so those letters were in this collection. We also received works from a guy named uh, Translin. He was another orchid hybridizer. What was happening in Massachusetts at the time, um, Harvard was giving, a lot of the folks from Harvard were, were donating their collections to the Mass Hort Society. Oaks Ames, uh, Asa Gray, all those big gardening names, uh, botany names, were at Harvard at the time. And so this guy, Kranzlin, he was from Germany, he was from Hamburg. He had his own herbarium. He had a lot of different things he was working on for orchid hybridizing. He sent some of his work to Oaks Ames, who was uh, an orchid guy at Harvard. And there was another person who was connected with Mass Hort Society, whose name was Albert Barrage. And it ends up that he's the, here's these connections. He was the, he's the first American Orchid Society president. So he had tons and tons of orchid stuff in his collection. So all this stuff ended up at Mass Hort. Unfortunately, Kranzlin's herbarium got bombed during the World War II. Oh. So it was a lucky thing that he sent stuff to Harvard because it went from Hamburg to Harvard to here. Wow. So that's how things just, We've gotten this great, really core, primary source collection from them. We talk about the Mass Hort collection, but, you know, we've had it now for 14 years, so it's really our collection now. But we always pay homage to the Mass Hort Society. I mean, they're still around, and I still talk to the librarian there, and if she needs anything, I'm always happy to send her stuff, you know, like, oh, I'll help you. Yeah. It's unfortunate that that happened. But then we also we also have a, a room that is got its own HVAC system, so it's, it's temperature controlled and humidity controlled, and so it, it's in a safe place. It's like, yay, it's somewhere. When, when some of the stuff was in um, Massachusetts, it some of it got water damaged. We are continually working on 
preserving the stuff and conserving the stuff. So there are some things that are in need of help, and there are things that are in just fantastic shape. And so we just are caring. We're like the stewards for it. We really care for the collection. Yes. So I hope that answered your question. (laughs) It did, yeah. I was so curious. I, I, I found out from talking to Lisa that the Botanic Garden itself is not that old as Botanic Gardens go. And so for me to kind of find out a little bit about you, Stacey, and what you're doing, I was like, I wonder how she's even getting this stuff. How did all that come in? And I was thinking the Chicago Horticultural Society was where the material was coming from. So very interesting to hear about your to Massachusetts. I think that's fascinating. Well, our first, so the Chicago Hort Society started around, I'm not sure if it was 1890, but I know that in 1893, they were going to be in the Columbian Exposition with the Horticultural Hall. What we do have from that time, we have this, and it's online. I can send you the link so you can take a look at it. There's a handwritten, it's a manuscript, it's handwritten information like the the board. So there were board meetings. And so these are the minutes from the meetings. And so we have that. There wasn't really a library for the Chicago Hort Society until about 1950. So that's when they start collecting things. But there was really no physical botanic garden until they, what, they broke ground, I think, like 1965-ish. They were working on the land acquisition and and all that stuff. So once things started rolling here with the education department, that's when the library, I think, really started collecting more. And, you know, it's a great, we have a really great collection for as young as we are. One of the things the director of the Harvard Botany Library said to me in the last couple of years, she said, you guys are on a trajectory. And that made me feel really proud because I thought, whoa, Harvard said said that to us. I just like go, well, her name is Judy Warneman. You know, it's just like, whoa, she said that to us. I feel really good now, you know, because I'm real proud of the collection. I mean, you know, we can whip out some really cool bling. Yes. <laughs> and say, hey, this is one of my etchings from 16, you know, 36. So, yes. you know, are, where are you? Are you in the, in this area? Or are you out of state? I'm in Maple Grove, Minnesota. So I'm in the Twin Cities. Oh. I'm in a northwest suburb. Yep. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Because I was going to say, anytime you want to come see any of our stuff. But we've got a really good friend at the Anderson She's in, is it Chaska? Yes, at the Arboretum. Um, yeah, the Arboretum. So a really good friend of mine works there, it's, uh, Kathy Allen. So she's got a Maria Sibylla Marion. So you could call her and say, hey, I talked to Stacy. She sent me over to see your Maria Sibylla. So All right, <laughs> you twist my arm. See some, some of her <laughs> bling, yeah. I'll do that. Well, I love that. You know, here's a question for you as a genealogist. I always use this method myself when I'm trying to get at original documents or original photos. And I'll always tell someone if I'm, I'm coming to see their archive, I'll say, hey, I, I don't need the original. I, I just love a picture or I'd, I'd love to take yeah. a, um, I'll take a scan of it with my phone. You know, I don't even need to touch it. Just if you wouldn't right. mind uh, doing that. Is there a move to digitize so many of these things that are in libraries that are, you know, kind of off limits to the public or that are, you know, only brought out 
occasionally over mm-hmm. a decade. You know, how how come there isn't more of a drive to do that just so everybody can see it and it's online? I am so thrilled. You don't know how happy I am that you asked that question because there is something. Archives, uh, okay, so there's a lot of different answers to this, but the, the biggest one right now is the Biodiversity Heritage Library. Are you familiar with that? No. Okay. So it's www.biodiversityheritagelibrary. That's a lot to say. Dot yes. org. Yes. And I can send you a link. And so that is a consortium, and we're involved in it. And that's another thing I'm proud of. It's It started out about 10 years ago. And the key players were, and still are, Missouri Botanic Garden, New York Botanic Garden. These are botanic and, and natural history, but just bear with me. So Smithsonian, and now we have become a part of it. And so if you go on their website, they have, I want to say, 55 million pages to date of things that are primary sources that, you know, so it's like you go, oh, wow, I need to see what Linnaeus had to say in 1753 about coffee. Yes. It's there. Wow. And so Missouri Botanic Garden has done a wonderful job with doing a lot of the page turning and the scanning. Okay. And so more and more people are becoming involved with this. So I actually met a woman who, this is crazy, she's in charge of like 15 libraries in South Africa. She's like one of the coolest people I ever met. And she's like, oh, we, you have this book? This Mr. Bolas, he, you know, was, his name is like in the South African blah, blah, blah of botany. There are so many things out there that we have never seen. We have, we don't even know exist. Yeah. And so a lot of these libraries are getting on board. It's funding. Funding is the thing that, you know, nobody has any. Yes. <laughs> but... But to have, for for them to have pulled off fifty five million pages already is like mind boggling to me. And you can just go on it and look stuff up. It's it can be because it's ten years old and it's been you know it's an ongoing repository. It's not as clunky as it sounds. I mean, you can really kind of whiz through it and find things that you go, wow, I can't believe this is on here. And you know, beautiful illustrations and. Latin texts and all kinds of stuff like that. But then on the other hand, on the flip side, for folks who it's maybe it's a little more closer in, like the genealogy stuff, I know England does it. They have tons of their census stuff online because they're just so old. But some of our pieces, we have them on a thing called uh, Illinois Digital IDA, Illinois Digital Association. And um, it's a yeah, Illinois Digital Archives. Thank you. Yep. And a lot of folks are starting to use those types of services to upload and and put these things into. So digital curation is kind of the next wave. Yes. You know, so that, you know, we have a book in the collection. It's um, a French woman. It's a beautiful, it's beautifully illustrated. It's It's engraved. With hand hand coloring, uh, hand watercolors, and it's very scarce. And so there's one, I believe, in oh, let's see, is it in Cleveland? 
I don't even know if they have one at New York, but we've got one, and then there's one at the Bibliothèque de Nationale in, in Paris. So, you know, if someone in Minnesota goes, well, you know, the closest place for me to go see this is, you know, in Illinois, so they come here. You know, you can't fly to Paris, you know, probably, like, and, you know, just yes. whimsically, yeah. You know, things like that, it's like, wow, these things are really scarce and they're getting digitized. So it is happening. It's slow, yeah. but it's happening. So in so. your mind, you know, a lot of times from the from a genealogy standpoint, people sometimes get proprietary. You know, it's, right. I worked hard to get this. I'm not just going to share it so it could be that easy for people to get. You know, they want they want to see others struggle in the way that they did to try to get that information. Is yeah, it that's so true. but you see it more as in in your world, in the education world, in the librarian world, it's more about funding. It's less about people being protective about collections, do you think? Well, one for one thing, what we have because of the age of all the, the items, they are in public domain. And so that is why, you know, we can do this. If, if somebody wrote a, a treatment on, you know, it, there's all this, there's so many new cancer journals and all these peer-reviewed journals and all those things, those things don't become a part of this until later on but all this all this old stuff is in public domain so i don't see why that can't be shared universally okay. and it's like op- just open source and for genealogy wouldn't that information about people migration and things like that wouldn't you think that that should be open to well, I tend to go that way. If somebody shares something with me, you know, my tendency is want is to want to share it with everyone, you know, unless they specifically say don't do that. But I wish that that more people would think about that because just for posterity, right. now it's like, hey, we have this one picture of grandma's wedding and instead of fighting about it, let's just take a picture of the picture. And for yeah. most people, that's good enough. And at least future generations can see it. You know, the other thing is, and you gave a great example of this, right? There's still things like fire and theft and flood yeah. and just right. age that deteriorate these things. So I always feel an urgency to get it digitized just for posterity. And as I yeah. remind everyone in my family, you know, you're two generations really away from being kind of forgotten, you know, unless right. you, you yeah. have people that really, you know, are passionate about continuing to share your story. Otherwise, it's like, how many people really know all eight of their great grandparents and who they were right. and where they came from? You know, most people, that's a that's a tough thing to talk about. And from a yeah. from this type of thing, from a historical standpoint, it's a challenge. And I know that, you know, the topic that you and I are going to be talking about here, the fern craze. This is a somewhat challenging topic to research. There's not a lot out there just in terms of YouTube, kind of more modern mm-hmm. media right now about it. And so right. that's what caught my attention. I thought, oh, my gosh, how are they doing this lecture on the Victorian fern craze? And, how, you know, what is the basis for it? <laughs> the other thing that I thought was interesting, when you were talking about your staff coming in, you, you lay out all of the materials that you're going to use for the exhibition. And mm-hmm. then different people come in and you have this photography 
photographer that will come in. And I'm assuming the photographer is doing what I do from a genealogy standpoint, which is taking a picture of the picture. They're taking a picture of the illustrations or the graphics that are in the book. And they're able to do that because there's no copyright issue here. This is all public. At what point does it become public property or, or open to the public as opposed to being something that's protected? There's always a year, and I, I believe it's 75 years. Okay. Is that 1930? Whoa. I used to be able to tell, like, because of my mom's age. <laughs> <laughs> but now I think it's it's uh, it's closer than 1934. So I think it's that would have been 80. So maybe closer to 1940 now, I guess. Okay. Stacy, just think pretty soon we're going to be using our own age as the, as the yeah, basis oh, for whether or not it's Exactly. Yeah, I'll be like, 1966, <laughs> that was just, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, it was last century. Boy, wow, man, that's really bad. I love so, it. Oh, wow. Exactly. So what's it like? You yeah. you you have the materials. Do you kind of guide them and say, oh, I found this. You've got to take a picture of it. Or do you let them kind of pick and choose? What, oh, what that's, a great, to that's a great question. Well, I usually, by that time, by the time they've come, I've selected the, all the books that I could fit in. So uh, we're talking, it's three cases only. It's not a big exhibition. I mean, it's tiny. You know, I've got three vitrines, so I have to be. That's part. That's why the job is. It, this part is so hard to make the selection. Sometimes we have way more, and I'm like, oh, I want to put this in. Wait, can I add something else? Can I, you know, so if there's way more, then I use that for the talk. Okay. You know, I, I have stuff set aside. But so to get back to your the question, so I have it laid out. And and it's got to go, now it's going to be case-wise, because I usually start out, it's usually historically, like it's telling a story. So in these three little cases, I got to really be concise and condense it and, you know, but make it kind of splash. So I'm showing them now the books that are selected. Usually I have an idea of what it's going to be open to, because in the text, it's going to maybe refer back to that illustration. Not always, but it, it does. They come in with seeing it, how it's laid out. But there are times where I'm like, James, I can't decide you pick or somebody you pick, you know, because there's so many awesome illustrations. But we usually, in the text, in the signage, it'll say what the specimen is. So, you know, it, we don't want to have to make too many changes because it goes up and back then. We have to make changes or edits on the on the signage. Robin takes photographs, like you said, of different covers. Sometimes just the spine will be so beautiful. We we'll use the spine as one of the elements, one of the graphic elements. Sometimes we do this little thumbnail thing. They will take a photo of every illustration that the uh, book will be open to, and they'll make a little thumbnail for each one of the signs. So they oh, may be that. different. Yeah, so they may all be different. So we did one, women illustrators, because that's real hard. You know, so many women illustrators were doing these engravings, but nobody talked about them. Nobody, they didn't get any recognition. So we try to find what we could where we could showcase these women illustrators. So that one was real particular. They were little thumbnails on every citation 
from the book that it was representing. And sometimes I'm just like, you you guys, what do you think? You know, I get, I'll go, yeah, this is looking kind of... The way I decide is like, if I get excited about it, I'm like, whoa, whoa, that really does it for me. And that's how I kind of go with it. It's really, it's kind of kooky. I, I guess it's not good for me to pick stocks that way. <laughs> I'd love it. But I'll say to them sometimes, like, okay, I've looked at this so long now. You, somebody give me a fresh eyeball yes, and, you, you know, they'll go, oh, eyes. this is, this, yeah, exactly. I love the collaboration. Once I worked with the director and I worked on something and we, we got it. It was like we were really grooving. And I go, wow, that was like a Lennon-McCartney moment we just had. <laughs> so it was like, you know, that thing. You know, you get you get some good stuff. So I love it. It's good to collaborate. Now, you've mentioned this one term, and I'm not familiar with it, so you'll have to tell me what it means. But And I'm not even okay. sure that I'm, I'm pronouncing it right, but you've said something Could be like, a word I made up. Too. Well, no, I think it's a, I think it's a librarian term. What about, is it? Uh, when I ask you about the, the collection or what you're limited to, you'll say, well, we only have three. Yeah, we- vitrines. Oh. So it's V-I-T-R-I-N-E-S. Vitrines. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just another word for cases. Cases. The exhibition cases. So, you know, they're all in, the books are just in these, you know, on these tables with glass coverings. So they're, you know, exhibit cases. Vitrine. Vitrine. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it sounds, it's, it's, um, it rhymes with latrine. <laughs> yes, I know. There was a couple times where I'm like, what is she saying? So you are, what you're saying is your big challenge is it doesn't matter the topic. You only have so much physical space to display yeah, any exhibit right. and you have to limit yourself to these vitrines. And are we talking about like a tabletop, like a standard kitchen table here? Yeah. Yeah. I could send you photos of what it looks like. I mean, it's small. Okay. And um, there was one orchid show that I did that I actually had extra vitrines or um, exhibit cases that we brought in. And I had maybe two or three extra ones. And it was just awesome because we do an orchid show every year at the garden now. Yes. Um, the fir- before the garden started doing one, we had really the first orchid show here. And it was, I just showcased, we've got this one thing called the Orchid Album, and it's 11 volumes, and it's got, so in the 11 volumes, it's got about 520 illustrations, and they're just gorgeous. You know, and I always make it a challenge. Instead of just going, yeah, here it is, 11 bucks, rock on, you know, (laughs) we were having, there was something else in the garden talking about. I think it was called Protecting Eden or something like that. And I'm probably got the word, the thing wrong, the title wrong. But it, uh, so I try to focus on two different kinds of orchids, ones that were still around and then some that were extinct mm. to kind of drive home that conservation issue. Like, hey, people, stop pulling stuff out of places you shouldn't be. You know, there are so many plants that are, Endangered, just like animal species, you know, and and it's happening from for all different reasons, obviously, you know, climate change and people moving into the areas, but then a lot of people going and taking stuff that they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So that was about, you know, the conservation aspect of it. And then what I love to talk about was that that came from Mass Hort the Massachusetts Horticultural Society, yes. but they didn't want to give that to us 
in the original sale. So one of our, we have patrons and we have patron saints. And so we have a volunteer who's in his 90s who's very philanthropic. He went home and talked to his wife, Mary. He's like, Mary, can we do this? And so he went and bought it for us. So I bring those out to show them that keeping the collection together is so important. Yes. Wow, how amazing was that? Well, now is the part of the show where we're going to transition into the conversation that I had with Stacy that was centered on the real purpose for my call, which was the Victorian fern craze. Now, of course, as I was researching the Victorian fern craze, I stumbled on an article by Atlas Obscura, no surprise there, and here was the title of the article. It said, How the Victorian Fern Hunting Craze Led to Adventure, Romance, and Crime. Well, of course, that piqued my curiosity. And I wanted to read a few excerpts about the Victorian fern craze from this article to get you prepared for the next clip of my conversation with Stacey Stolt. So these little excerpts from this article are going to be kind of your background here. It says, in the 19th century, Victorians on both sides of the Atlantic came down with a severe case of fern fever, a craze for all things related to the humble yet ancient plant. Their devotion was such that researcher Peter Boyd likened the fern craze to an actual cult. Now, since the fern was not easy to cultivate, even with Wardian cases at hand, those were these glass cases that were kind of the precursor to terrariums, prices soon skyrocketed. After all, there were only 40 types of ferns in the English countryside, and collectors needed more. A non-British specimen could cost up to the Victorian equivalent of a thousand pounds. Professional fern hunters wrote accounts of scouring the West Indies, Panama, and Honduras for never-seen-before ferns. But nothing compared with the ultimate thrill, hunting down the wild fern yourself. Ferns extended an open invitation to adventure. And at the height of fern fever, even the truly discerning Victorian hostesses abandoned tea parties in favor of organized fern hunting. Even Charles Dickens turned to ferns to cure his daughter of her perceived apathy by suggesting she care for ferns. Okay, now I just have to tell you we're getting to the good part because this is my favorite part of the article. Because fern hunting was fashionable among both sexes and the trips would sometimes end up as all-nighters, romance was known to thrive among amateur botanists. Now, some of the fern-born romances were even built to last. When California botanists John Gill Lemon and Sarah Plummer were married, they chose to go on a grand plant safari in the Catalina Mountains for their honeymoon instead of the, quote, usual stupid and expensive visit to a watering place. Now, here's the description of their honeymoon. The couple ended up wrangling rattlesnakes, chasms, rock slides, fields of cactus, endless heat and cold. They crossed deserts, stayed in the camps horse thieves had abandoned. They also ran out of supplies since the trip meant to last for two weeks took them longer than a month. In the end, though, they reached the breathtaking top 
a valley they deemed a botanist's paradise. Plummer delivered an acclaimed lecture on their adventure and findings titled The Ferns of the Pacific Slope. Arizona's Mount Lemon was eventually named after her because, of course, by then, Sarah Plummer had become Sarah Lemon. And Sarah was the first white woman to reach its top. In fact, it remains one of the few mountains named after a woman. And that's not a small feat, considering that the couple's initial findings were touted as the work of, get this, John Gill Lemon and wife. Anyway, the article sums it up by saying, you know, there was fern fever here in the United States. It wasn't quite as crazy as it was over in England, but it was definitely a thing. So much so that the American Fern Society remains one of the largest in the world. Now, before I play this next clip where I'm talking with Stacy about the Victorian fern craze, I would be remiss if I did not mention this fantastic resource that you should get if you're interested and curious to learn more. And of course, it's the book by Sarah Whittingham, Fern Fever, The Story of Terradomania. And you can find it on Amazon or booksellers everywhere, but I'd really encourage you to get it. I think it's a treasure. And it's probably one of the handful of comprehensive resources that you can get about the Victorian fern craze. All right, without further ado, let's listen to the fabulous Stacey Stolt tell us about the Victorian fern craze. When we're talking about the fern craze, how did this topic get picked? For us to do... You know, we're, we're, so we're limited to plants, <laughs> mostly. So, um, you know, that's just another one of those crazy Victorian, they've gone through orchid mania, they've gone through the Victorian fern craze, they went through the language of flowers craze. So they were, I like to think of them as like the, you know, like the 19th century trendsetters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, they were, they were like the ones just, they're, they were like the, Baby boomers, I think, of the 19th century or something, you know, so they had their finger on the pulse of what was going on in the, in society, I think. Yeah, they really did. So, you know, it, it was kind of a, it's a craze. So, and it didn't last for very long, but then there was like a little bit of a resurgence, I think, in the 70s, too. So it was just one of those we decided, hey, do we have enough, do we have, first of all, do we have enough really cool things to put out there. And, oh, the one thing that I think was one of the deciding factors, too, was um, we, I, I believe we got a donation, um, and and there's a, a term, it's called nature printing. So we got an elephant folio of a Thomas More, okay, so Thomas More was like the um, authority on ferns during the 1800s. Okay, and what's an and elephant so folio? You've got to tell an me An elephant that folio is one of those really big, uh, you know, one of those giant books that, you know, you got a... Like a coffee table many, book? Yeah, but even bigger. You know, it's, it's huge. Even um, bigger, wow. Yeah, so let me, let me measure something here, and I'll tell you what I think it might be. Well, Stacy, I'm six feet tall, so I'd love to hear how big this book is. <laughs> Well, you could definitely carry it around with you. It's probably about 30, 
30, it's about 30 some inches. Okay. So that's like pretty three, big for a like book. It's like a three Just foot the, tall book. Yeah. And Almost. then you open it up and then it's, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty wide, wide book. So this nature printing was done and there aren't a lot, whole lot of these books. How they made this thing, they would take the plant and actually, let me just make sure, now I'm going to look at some notes. I've been just yapping and yapping, but I think I need my notes here for this. So they used the plant specimen to print an illustration. Um, here, and I'm going to read something to you so I get it right. Cause I, this is where I fall down when I have to talk about the uh, printing processes because there are so many different ones. i got to make sure I'm saying the right thing. Yep. Nature prints were formed by pressing dried plant specimens between a copper or steel plate and a highly polished soft lead plate. So they, like, press it into the lead plate. <laughs> so you get the impression of the plant. And then you go in and you hand ink the thing. We have one case just with nature prints, and they're kind of scarce, and they're really pretty cool. And they're by Thomas Moore, who was, he was the fern authority of the time. Okay. So he was the guy writing about, he could tell you anything about ferns. So that was one of the driving forces behind us picking this fern craze now because that one book was is fairly new to the collection so we thought oh well we've got this one so let's let's work on that now when you're giving the lecture are you actually presenting the lecture or do you have someone come in and and give a lecture we do have people come in uh, usually it's just us the staff and especially the person who's written the thing so if you wrote it you're doing the talk I mean, it's it's really, it's it's tiny. It's really tiny. It's a 20-minute walkthrough. Anything that I can remember about the fern craze is what I'm going to talk about. I'll walk people through, you know, talk about the books that are in the cases, give them the history. So I'll tell them about, you know, the history of fern a little bit because they're like one of the oldest family of plants on Earth. They're about like 400 million years old. I always like to throw some humor in it. So the family name is Pteridophyta. And it's like people go, huh? Because it's got the P and the T. It looks like pterodactyl. So, yes. you know, I'll just say, just think about saying, hey, I'm going to tear it off of you. You know, because that's how, what it sounds like. I'm light. I mean, we get people who are like, oh, yes, I'd like to tell you. You know, I'm I'm not like that at all. So I want people to be engaged yes. and and learn a little bit. And it's not anything like I'm not taking a test afterwards or anything like that. So we just talk about a little bit of the history of the fern. And then, like I, I told you this before, if we don't, if I don't have room in the cases, you know, I'll have things in the rare book room. And so at the end, it's like a 20-minute talk, and then I take people into the rare book room, and then I show them more stuff. Oh, cool. You know? And that's, that's where people get really excited. It's it's not even the lecture out there. It's when they come into the rare book room because then they're up close and personal with the stuff. Hmm. There are different schools of thought on whether you should wear gloves. People always say, why aren't you wearing gloves? And there is a propensity to tear pages um, if you have gloves on. And the other thing is, you know, there are studies. I mean, this is not something that we just decided on our own. A lot of people, it's the, the movement is going this way to not use gloves. I mean, I'll go to one place and they don't, and then you go to the Smithsonian and they will. Um, there, neither one is right, neither one is wrong. It's just 
the decision that you make and how uh, your hands are always going to be clean if you're touching these things. So people come in and then they're like, wow, this is something I have never seen up close, you know, something this old. And I'll bring out other things, too. You get a chance in the exhibition to show these Wardian cases, because those were a big part of the movement, the fern craze, because people needed a place to put the ferns. So they were buying these glass cases that are attributed to Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward. So I'll show uh, really cool illustrations from Gardner's Chronicle. Those are serials that have uh, ads for the Wardian cases. But there's like more to the Wardian case because he really improved an idea that was around since, you know, the 1700s or earlier. He just got all the, he just got all the kudos for it. So I'll show like the one that was out in, you know, the early 1700s by John Ellis. It was a case where they were putting plants in and traveling, you know, um, when they were bringing plants home on the plant expeditions and stuff. So he just improved the idea, but he got all the fame for it. They're really the early version of terrariums, right? What most people think of as a terrarium. Yes, absolutely. My understanding is that the Wardian case was on legs. So it's if you have a if you'd have a terrarium and then kind of on a plant stand, right? That's more or less yeah. what it was. Yeah, you could, you had them on plant stands, but they also had I, I mean I've seen some that you can just set on a table because you didn't always have a lot of room. You, most of the time now you're, you know, the gardening became this huge national pastime in England in you know, during the Victorian era. And so Ward made all these different cases, different sizes. Some fit on legs, some fit on the table, some were in your window box. So he did all these different things. He was just, he had the corner of the market of those things. So there were rounded ones, really cool. So I have some of those illustrations of those ads for those things. So that was that's pretty cool. And somebody asked me the other day, they said, you're saying Edwardian. I said, no, 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 it's not Edwardian because we're talking about Victorian times. His name was Ward, and it's a Wardian case. So it's I just a want, Wardian case. Yeah. Okay. Well, and this fern fever had a scientific, a somewhat scientific name that was made up by, was it Charles Kingsley? And he called it pterodomania? Pterodomania. You're right. Yes. And more science behind this, you know, it, it went from about the 1850s to 1890s. And I, this is, this is the first time I took the liberty of using some words that I love. You know, I just love to make up words. So, um, and, and I'm sure somebody else did it before me, but I like the word fanaticism. <laughs> <laughs> so, the science behind it, too, is, so 1850s, 1890s is about the fern craze, approximately, when it was when it was going on, because they knew how to propagate them. You know, the, the, the thing opens up, the first case has the first fern history uh, in English that I know of, and it's by a guy named James Bolton, and it's a fern history. Most of the ferns are from... Wales and England and Scotland, but people didn't realize, you know, because spores are so tiny, 
And this is before they really had any kind of, they weren't looking at anything microscopically. They didn't know how they were reproducing. So it wasn't until the fern cycle was kind of figured out. So in 1848, this Michael Siminski, he explained the reproductive cycle of ferns. Because people would have ferns, and then if they died, that was it. They'd either have to order a new one or go get one. And so once they figured out these spores, you know, they were calling them fern dust or fern seeds because they they didn't know what it was. I love it. Fern dust. And, you know, there are these weird myths. You know, there's always like some really kooky thing behind them. And the Greeks, I think the Greeks said this, you know, it was like, well, you know, since these uh, fern dust or seeds are invisible, anybody who can you know, perpetuate a fern can turn invisible themselves. So that's like one of the goofy myths. <laughs> that's one of the, and, I, and that's not in any of the, that's just one of the stories for later. And there's a guy, John Lindsay, who started experimenting with it and, and figured out how to propagate them. And so at that point, that's when the, you know, they couldn't keep them in stock. That's when it hit. It was like, really? Now, now we can propagate these plants. It's like we don't have to go to the store every time if we. So, you know, they they were more utilitarian in the beginning. They used them for thatched roofs. They used them for litter for their cattle and stuff like that. They were just like called bracken, you know, in English. Oh, there's the bracken. Let's have them sitting there, you know. <laughs> so now it's like whoa. We know how to propagate these ferns. Now they just start buying them everywhere. And what the cool thing about this fern phrase was that this is something I read, and I just thought this was great. You know, Victorian, even though you you get all these different ideas about it, the people are supposed to be like, you know, when Queen Victoria Albert, she was in mourning for all those years, so it was supposed to be like really, oh, you know, you had a wear button up your collar kind of thing, you know, and women were, you know, not looking at any reproductive cycles of plants. That was taboo. But they would go, it made a great day out on a Sunday. People would go fern picking. And it was really kind of a thing to like meet the members of, or maybe not the members of the opposite sex. It was like, get out and go pick ferns and meet new people. It was like the meet, it was like a fern meetup. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I like to, you know, I like to put it in terms of what it reminds me of today. So, um, but it got so crazy. Um, you know, they were, they couldn't keep, ferns in in stores and they couldn't keep them in the nurseries they were just you know it just went crazy and then all these decorative art things started coming up so things with fern motifs and then i spelled furniture f-e-r-n too because they were all these decorative art things like um headstones and i think there was glass and textiles and then that's where i had to write furniture with the f-e-r-n Fern societies were popping up everywhere, too. And then the romantics, when they were writing about things, they were like, oh, and then we met on the moors with the ferns, you know? So that way it was popping up all over the place. That's kind of the fern craze right there, I think. I had read that on these fern hunting trips that there were even some overnight trips. Like you could go on an overnight trip uh, two like men and women 
And wow. I'm imagining the Victorians and their reaction to this, right? Like, oh yeah, hey exactly. mom, I like, want to go on this overnight trip. I'm gonna go, <laughs> I'm gonna go <laughs> looking for ferns, and and Bob and Tim are gonna be there too. Um, yeah, yeah. Can I don't you, know. Can you imagine that household? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I can't man. believe they got away with it. Yeah, and so, and I didn't realize they had overnight ones, so thank you. I'm going to use that in the talk then. I just keep adding. <laughs> the more I find out, the more I'll talk about, so. So they're just fascinated by it. They're crazy with fern fever. They're going on these trips. They're buying ferns. They're buying these Wardian cases to put their ferns right. in. How did it exactly. start? Is Can they trace it back to Plantsman X, the, the first person that really started it all? Well, I think John Lindsay, I want to say he's maybe the guy that I've read about. There's there's different people that they talk about. John Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, I've read that he started experimenting and was able to figure out that they were actually the spores. I think he's one of the first people that began propagating them. So we also do like a book display of books that people can check out. So as a member of the garden, you can you have um, borrowing privileges. So we have a I have a book called uh, From Spore to Spore, and it talks about <laughs> how they how they can be propagated. There's another way that you can do some of them from cuttings. We'll talk a little bit about that, but not so much. I think people really want to know about the books. Can you highlight some of the books that are in your collection that have to do with this craze? Were they published during the time of the Victorian fern craze? Yeah, most of the books. And what I can do, too, would you like me to send you the list of the books that are in? Oh, that'd be lovely. Do you want me to do that? Because so I started out, the first book is, like, we talked a little bit about him before, this James Bolton. He's 1785 to... 1852, I think. And so he wrote this first fern history. That's the one where I talked about the the ferns that were from uh, Wales and England and Scotland. And he didn't know anything about propagating them, but he wrote about his inspection and what his ideas are a little bit, and he names them. He gives the names in in the book. And so I think there are only maybe 31. They're hand-colored copper plate engravings. And this guy is James Bolton. And so, like I said, he's the fir- it's the first fern history we see. And that's before the fern craze. Then the next ones after that are during the fern craze. This Thomas Moore, remember that guy? He was He's the authority on ferns during the fern craze. Yes. So he, and, and that elephant folio book, that real big book. So we'll have that. It's called The Ferns of Great Britain and Ireland. Okay. And there are three of those. So the nature printing, that's the one with the, you know, they were, they're using the, the fern to actually impress into the plate and then hand inking it afterwards. And actually, if you see it in person, the illustration that actually that look like it's hairs, you know, like oh. the, the rhizomes at the bottom. Really cool looking. And Henry Bradbury is the guy that did the nature prints. Edward Joseph Lowe, 
we have an eight volume set by him and it's kind of a comprehensive work on ferns. It's like a, uh, an encyclopedia, an encyclopedic compendium of ferns. And that's called Ferns, British and Exotic. So I can send you the names of the books. Hooker, remember how we talked about Joseph Dalton Hooker? Yes. Well, his dad, William Jackson Hooker, was the first director of Q, and he put out so many great books. One of them is called Genera, G-E-N-E-R-A, Silicum, F as in Frank, I-L-I-C-U-M. Okay. So the old word for ferns was, uh, or the Latin word was felices. It looked like F-I-L-I-C-E-S. So William Jackson Hooker, there's a, there's a really cool book of his, and it's illustrated by this guy. It's uh, Francis Bauer, B-A-U-E-R. He's like one of those botanical rock star illustrator guys from that time. It's all magnifications of spores. So it's like real intricately drawn or engraved pictures or illustrations of the spores. So this is from the early 18, you know, 1850s. And so that's a really cool book that's, that's in it. Uh, there's a couple more of William Jackson Hooker's. The ones that are closed, and I actually have a couple of um, specimens in there, too, dried specimens that someone did for me. There's the Fern Paradise and Beautiful Ferns. These are the ones that are really part of that movement because they have these beautiful gold leaf covers depicting ferns, and these are the ones that people went and, and looked for all the time. So there was a field book of common ferns. Oh, sure. Shirley Hibbard's uh, Fern Garden. Shirley Hibbard, um, okay. Yeah. Francis Theodora Parsons, How to Know the Ferns. How to know. And I was, this one's great. How to Know the Ferns, A Guide to the Names, Haunts, and Habits of Our Common Ferns. And then uh, Phoebe <laughs> Lancaster, there's another one. But I can send you the list of the books. Oh, I would love that. Want. I would love that. Well, I, yeah, had, I just quickly Googled this Shirley Hibbard book, and it's beautiful, uh-huh. The Fern Garden, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And I have it closed so that people can... So that one actually has inside, it's got a couple of illustrations of Wardian cases. I was like, to show the Wardian case! I almost had a Wardian case brought up, but we have another... It, there was not enough room to have it in. And it's not a, it's just a replica, you know, replica. We didn't have enough room because we have some other things for the holidays in, in the library. Because I was like, I should have part of this in a Wardian case. I'm just going to have to talk about it in the lecture. So, well, and <laughs> we'll I talk love, about Ward. Yeah, and I love the, the marketing piece that's kind of woven into these materials. So you've got, you know, people that were just participating in the craze because it was the thing to do. It was part of the culture. Then you have the more kind of serious scientists that are also pursuing ferns. And then it becomes commercial and you end up with things like this uh, Shirley Hibbard book. And I'm reading here and it says, How to Make, Keep, and Enjoy It or Fern Culture Made Easy. I mean, this sounds like something you'd click on on uh, Facebook, on a sponsored ad. It doesn't sound yeah. like it doesn't sound like something that was written during the Victorian era and yet it was. Right. And that's just yeah. I mean, that just goes to show how popular 
it was and how these fern crazy Victorians were trying to market their passion. Right. And and so much of it was marketing. I mean, all these folks were, all these people were going on these just plant expeditions overall. And, you know, because there was no TV and because there was no social media and stuff, this is what people did. I mean, gardening was the national pastime in England. And because the empire was so far-reaching, it was all over the place. So all these people were, you know, there were, the classes were changing. There's a whole lot of politics so that, you know, there's more classes. It's not just the upper classes. Now there's like a middle class and different classes. So they're trying to, oh, it used to be just the rich person's, you know, gardening, you know, was like the rich person's pastime. Well, now it's become you know, kind of class-wide, everybody was like, oh, well, we have a Wardian case. Well, you know, and that was a way to show off some of your wealth. Having those books, you know, some of these kind of gold-tooled books, I mean, way before that, having any books, you know, people didn't have any books in, you know, the 1500s because it was too expensive, you know, to have a book. And you think about it now, as I look through, you know, I'm a... Uh, a cousin of mine said, are you an information hoarder? And I was like, oh, that's a good thing to say to me. So <laughs> too many books now. I have way too many books. But, you know, a long time ago, you didn't have that many books. So That's right. But it was this national pastime. It was just a passion. And there was this really dynamic movement between the nurseries and the garden, they weren't really garden centers, they were they were really nurseries and plantsmen and those people who were bringing these and making money, you know, selling all these plants. So there, there's that whole commodities issue, too. Uh, it really does. It, it touches all these different aspects of life. And I read some of the scientists, some of the people were really trying, you know, if you weren't going to be a clergyman... You then became a naturalist a lot of times. Some of the notions at the time was the more you knew about the nature of plants and the nature of things, the closer you were to God or understanding, you know, that kind of thing. You were, you were closer to having a better understanding of life. So, I mean, that comes from all these different notions. But, it, you know, there certainly was the evolutionaries and then the, you know, creationists and all that stuff going on a little bit. You know, people were looking at science as, you know, this was the next wave. Do you have anything else from the lecture or your notes that you think is a particular highlight? I, I think the highlight is really bringing folks into the rare book room. And I always show the oldest book. So that's our 1483, Theophrastus. That's always a highlight. It's called Enquiry into Plants. I can send you the name of that one. Okay. And I will show, like I said, original ads of Wardian cases. And, oh, this to me will be the, this will be the, you know, I always love to shake it up a little bit. I'll bring out um, a book by John Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, who really had the original Wardian case. Because to me, he didn't get any notoriety at all. It was something he made out of necessity 
to carry plants back and forth so that they didn't die on these long voyages. If if there's anything, maybe not to anybody else, but to me, that I think is a it's an important thing to pay homage to to that guy who really came, he really came up with the Wardian case and didn't get any credit for it. Yes, it's the fishing equivalent of the tackle box. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was serving a purpose. It was very functional, yes. very pragmatic. Yeah, exactly. So, so how was that? <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. So the craze dies out, I read, because when the Victorian era ended... They just mm-hmm. basically said, you know what, out with everything Victorian. And so yeah. since the fern craze was part of that, that went by the wayside as well. And yeah. so that was the end of that, out with the old and with the new. And yeah. they abandoned this infatuation they had with ferns. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. Everything kind of just kind of just changed and... Um, you know, all things just kind of end. And I think there was a little resurgence in the 70s with the terrarium stuff and things like that, you know. But yes. yeah, it definitely died. It definitely died in like the 1890s or when did she die? In 19, 1901? I forget her death date. But yeah, it was definitely, definitely the end. Yep, that was that. And things just keep coming around in cycles. I mean, the last exhibit we did, it was pressing for plants, herbaria books. And so it was r- real scientific, but they were all plants that were pressed into books. They started out doing herbarium specimens in the 1500s, but it went from one guy picking up specimens from the New York Harbor, and he was trying, he had such a you know, he decided, oh, I'm going to get every specimen, every species I can. And then after he spent like 2,000 hours doing it, he goes, boy, what was I thinking? I'm just going to stop. I only could collect this many specimens. But there was another woman who took it to the other extreme, and she went on a two-year around-the-world trip with her husband. And everywhere she went through Europe and Asia, she picked up plants, and um, she, so it was actually like a diary. She put in like postcards of where she had been and then the plant specimen. And so when I showed that to people, I said, you know, this reminds me of like the 1850s scrapbooking of today. And people were like, yeah, whoa, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, that was, that was really a big deal was uh, herbaria especially for women. You know, they were learning Latin, saving plants, pressing plants. So there's, I, I can only see something that we do now that was similar to back then. And it's like, oh, yeah, that was 1850 scrapbooking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know. And then I know you said you work ahead. So beyond yeah. the Orchid Show, what is on the horizon for you? Oh, okay. Oh, that one's so cool. Um, we've got these... Posters. They're from the, the 1890. 1890 to 1908. They're these posters, and it's all economic botany. So they're poster size for botany classes. And they're just these amazing prints. They're all in German. I, you know, so since I've got only the three vitrines or the three cases, I can only fit, I think, five of them 
in the cases. It'll be these like economic botany posters. Oh. Um, after after that, it's like Brazil and the garden. I'm focusing all year on on larger pieces. After the or oh, the orchids are all going to be. That's next. Did I say orchids was next? Yep. Okay, so orchids, I'm only going to have about five large lithographs. Frederick Sander, S-A-N-D-E-R, put together. It's called Reichenbachia, and it's his homage to, I think it's Gustav Frederick Reichenbach, who was one of the orchid authorities during the 1800s. He's a German orchidologist, and so there are a lot of different books and works called Reichenbachia. We're going to have five like artist proofs of this Frederick Sander, his thing that's called Reichenbachia. So those will be out during the orchid show. But then the Brazil, Brazil in the Garden, is going to be focused on all things Brazilian, so we'll have books that we have from expeditions that like are some of the first maps they were creating with Brazil, you know, in South America with Brazil in them. And then I will have five lithographs of are you familiar with Margaret Mee, M E E? No. Take a look at her work. Her work reminds me of Maria Sibylla Marion, who is like one of my favorite people in the whole world. Maria Sibylla Marion was like 1650. She left her husband. She joined a cult for a while. She took, she was, she turned 50. That's why I keep saying 50. She took one of her daughters to Suriname with her and just, she, she debunked spontaneous generation. You know, and they'd say, Oh, look, this bug came out of this like decaying meat. You know, they, they didn't realize that there was metamorphosis life cycle, you know, so she okay. debunked that because she was making illustrations of butterflies in their chrysalis and the cocoon and the pupa and all that stuff. So as a little girl, like in, she was about 13, she was just so interested in, in these insects that she was just showing everybody the life cycle and nobody knew. So when she turned 50, she's like, she took one of her daughters to Suriname and she did the most beautiful illustrations. That's the one where I said, if you go to the Arboretum, they're connected with, it's their medical school. They have one of those Maria Sibylla Marians. And they're, when you look at her artwork, you go, oh, I know this stuff. It's, it's gorgeous. Anyway, Margaret Mee does a lot of work that looks kind of like that. It's just phenomenally detailed, uh, but she's a contemporary. She was in the 70s, 80s. She went to um, the Amazon and just did all these bromeliads. And she went, she lived in, I think she lived in Brazil for a while. So we're going to have illustrations of hers on display. That's the, the second to the last, the penultimate one. So we'll have Brazilian bromeliads. <laughs> and then the very last one will be Curtis's Botanical Magazine. That's the longest-running botanical magazine since, like, 1798 or something. It just never stopped. It's, it's current, and we, we have the current magazine. This is the longest-running botanical magazine ever. We have from, you know, volume one to now. So we'll bring out some of our favorite illustrations. And that's that's a connection with Joseph Dalton Hooker and William Hooker. So 
I think I can't talk anymore now. Wow, absolutely. <laughs> no kidding. Well, so this is called Curtis Botanical Magazine, and you have literally every single one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. I can't thank you enough. Rare book specialist, manager, oh, Library of Public Services, Stacy Stoll. Thank you so very much. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer. It was really wonderful to talk to you. And you mean we're on a show? <laughs> it was really great talking to you. You just sound like you're just so informed, and I'd love to. I'd love to interview you. <laughs> You know, the great thing about audio is you can be in your pajamas right now and, and old makeup and nobody knows, you know. <laughs> I'm always in my pajamas and old makeup. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, it's great talking to you. Oh, so, likewise. Thank Stacey. you so much. All right. They, no, thank you. Seriously. All right. All right. Thanks All right. a lot. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today. I'd like to thank Stacy Stolt of the Chicago Botanic Garden for being my guest. I hope you enjoyed learning about Stacy's work as a rare book specialist and about the Victorian fern craze, one of the exhibitions that Stacy had curated earlier this year. In fact, I hope this episode made you excited to incorporate ferns into your landscape this summer and in your home throughout the year, like I do with my lemon button fern that I keep inside and then Outside, I have a number of ferns, things from Boston Ivy to Mongo ferns, all sorts of ferns out there in my Minnesota garden. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, Eric Begay, my editor, Ayn Kadena, my copywriter, and David Gregerson, my project manager. Just a reminder, I'll have all the generous information that Stacy shared on the show today over at my website on the Still Growing Podcast page. And my website is sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And guess what, you guys? I just secured a new URL for the podcast page, and it's stillgrowing.org. So if that's a little bit easier for you, I'm probably going to be transitioning the podcast over to that URL. You can find it right now at stillgrowing.org. Hey, and before I forget, I want to make sure to remind you that there will be no new episode next week as I'm traveling to Washington, D.C. for the annual Garden Bloggers Fling. I'm so excited about it. I get to see some of my old friends from last year and make new friends this year. And then, of course, see tons and tons of wonderful gardens in the Washington, D.C. area. So go back, listen to some old episodes if you need more still growing And if you've already done that, if you've listened to all the Still Growing episodes, check out some other gardening podcasts. There's plenty out there. Anyway, if you feel like you have a little bit of your own fern fever after this episode, go out, divide your ferns, create some new little ferns in pots, share this episode with your fern-loving friends, and have a great two weeks, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.